You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The great threat to our republic today comes not from the hidden bribery of the Gilded Age, when cash was secreted among members of Congress to buy privilege and secure wealth. The great threat today is instead in plain sight. It is the economy of influence now transparent to all, which has normalized a process that draws our democracy away from the will of the people, a process that distorts our democracy from ends sought by both the left and the right. For the single most salient feature of the government that we have evolved is not that it discriminates in favor of one side and against the other. The single most salient feature is that it discriminates against all sides to favor itself. We have created an engine of influence that seeks not some particular strand of political or economic ideology, whether Marx or Hayek. We have created instead an engine of influence that seeks simply to make those most connected rich. Now, as a former young Republican, and indeed Pennsylvania's state chairman of the teenage Republicans, I don't mean to rally anyone against the rich, but I do mean to rally Republicans and Democrats alike against a certain kind of rich that no theorist on the right or the left has ever sought seriously to defend. The rich whose power comes not from hard work, creativity, innovation, or the creation of wealth. The rich who instead secure their wealth through the manipulation of government and politicians. The great evil that we as Americans face is the banal evil of second-rate minds who can't make it in the private sector and who therefore turn to the massive wealth directed by our government as the means to securing wealth for themselves. The enemy is not evil. The enemy is well-dressed. Lawrence Lessig is the director of the Edmund J. Safra Foundation Center for Ethics at Harvard University and a professor of law at Harvard Law School. He's the author of Remix, Code V2, Free Culture, the Future of Ideas, and Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. With Joe Trippi, he founded Fix Congress First, now RootStrikers.org, an organization to curb the undue influence of corporate lobbyists over the U.S. political process. His new book is Republic Lost. Thank you for joining me, Lawrence. Great to be here. Lawrence, what's so interesting about your book is that you don't rail so much against people, but against a system that makes it impossible, even for well-intentioned souls, to do good. Yeah, that's right. And that turns out to be one of the reasons why it's so hard to imagine us rallying to change the system. Because we as a people, as a body politic, are pretty good at reacting. We have an immune reaction against evil people. Um, So the Rob Lagojeviches or Randy Duke Cunninghams who uh, engage in criminal behavior, which is corruption, we're pretty good at identifying and trying to take steps to stop them. But we're not very good where the harm is done by decent people, good people. Um, Some might think good Germans in the World War II uh, analog. Good people who live within a system that they themselves they didn't create, but which directs them, drives them to behave in ways which 
which undermine the effectiveness of that institution, and in this case, undermine the effectiveness of our democracy. Now, this book, uh, you said, uh, grew a bit out of Remix, your last book. So I'd like you to just uh, talk about the seeds of this book as you as they grew out of Remix. Yeah, so when I was uh, writing Remix, it was at the end of really about 12 or 14 years of work in the area of intellectual property and the internet. Um, and what I had seen over those, that roughly a decade, was progress in understanding in many different contexts of our life. So teachers and parents and kids and businesses and Silicon Valley, everybody increasingly recognizing how we needed to update our copyright system in particular to make it make sense of the digital age. Uh, copyright was necessary. It was important. But the system we inherited was written for a completely different technology. And people got that. But I found that when I went to Washington and I tried to talk to Congress people in particular about this issue, it wasn't that they so much were on the other side. They didn't even realize there were two sides. They, they didn't even understand that there was someone who thought something other than um, they, that uh, piracy was good. I, I don't believe in piracy, but I also believe that the existing system needs to be changed. Uh, and they'd never even heard that. And the reason they hadn't heard it is the other side doesn't have a gaggle of lobbyists inside of Washington who are constantly pushing Washington to adjust the law in the right way. The other side is invisible because the other side doesn't have money in the game. And that showed me, you know, showed me first I wasn't as smart as I thought because it's a pretty obvious point. Um, uh, but it showed me that we were not going to make any progress on that issue until we made some progress on this more fundamental issue of corruption inside our political system. And not just on esoteric issues like copyright, but also fundamental issues like the issue of global warming, the issue of health care, the issue of simpler taxes, this issue, if you believe in it, of smaller government. These are all issues where the existing system tilts strongly against reform. Uh, and it won't change until we change the system for funding campaigns. And this is why you've created Root Strikers. And, and one of the things you talk about is that progressives um, are today associated with liberals, but they used to be every political stripe, didn't they? That's right. The progressive movement of 100 years ago had many different kinds of people who called themselves progressives. Some, you know, who should embarrass progressives of today, you know, the eugenics uh, movement came from progressives and the prohibitionist movement was progressives. These were all people who wanted to bring about uh, progress or change in the culture. But one thing that united um, the vast majority of these progressives was the idea that the existing system of government was corrupt. Now, the corruption of the Gilded Age was a different kind of corruption. It had much more Rob Lagojevich than it did the in-plain-sight corruption that I was talking about. But still, people were increasingly coming to recognize the way in which governments of all forms, state, local, and federal, had been infected by uh, money in a way that made it impossible for the government to respond to the will of the people. And so by 1912, we see the climax of an election around this issue. And two of the candidates, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, are self-described progressives. Their politics is very different. T uh, Teddy Roosevelt is a, a Republican who started the Bull Moose Party when he couldn't get the Republican nomination. And uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson is, of course, a Democrat. But, and they have very different views about what's wrong with the economy and how to fix the economy and how to deal with monopolies. But one thing that united them was their view that there was a basic corruption in the system, and all progressives could identify that corruption as the thing that they wanted to unite and fight against.
you talk about the, what you call the nature of the, the, the disease, and you talk about two different kinds of corruption, venal corruption and systemic corruption. I'd like you to discuss what these are, how they differ, and how you came to those definitions. Well, I was building in this part of the book on work of Professor Wallace, who framed these two kinds of corruptions. And by venal corruption, he's referring to what I was before calling uh, Rob Lagojevich corruption, you know, people who are getting something personally in exchange for some kind of government benefit. Now, that's distinct from what Wallace calls the systemic corruption, because systemic corruption is where the government itself tries to make powerful people in the society dependent upon it so that they support the government. And we have examples of that kind of systemic corruption. So when the government hands out licenses to broadcast on radio, um, uh, there are a lot of important people who depend upon the continued government favor of getting those licenses. So they might be less willing to criticize the government or less willing to be really strong in, in, in pushing against the government if the government itself has control over whether they continue to have the freedom or the liberty to broadcast. So that's a kind of systemic corruption. And we can see, I think, in America, you know, instances of both of these kinds of corruption. Um, but the kind of corruption that I think is critical here is to recognize that both of those corruptions make it sound like people really intend. They're really like bad people that are driving both of those. Um, but the kind of corruption I think about is, is where it's not that anybody's intending to do anything bad. They just find themselves within a system that can't help but drive them towards behaving in a way that undermines the effectiveness of the system for the purpose that the system was established. So our republic was set up as a representative democracy, and the framers meant by that a democracy, quote, dependent upon the people alone. Uh, well, if Congress is increasingly dependent upon funders, then they're not dependent upon the people alone uh, because the funders are not the people. So that means that they're, uh, they have the wrong dependency, and that is, I want to say, a kind of corruption itself. One of the things I think that's uh, so interesting about the way uh, this book is written is just your prose style because um, you don't take a polemic approach. You don't take an academic approach. This is a very down-to-earth. It's written for everybody to read, and I, I really like that you the way you address the reader. Could you talk just about uh, creating the prose in this book? Your, your voice. I mean, I feel like um, I'm here sitting with you, but I I heard that voice on the printed page too. You know, I don't know that I'm very good and thinking self-consciously about how that happens. I think you know. It's almost the product of just the process uh, that I uh, used to write. So I kind of lock myself in a room, and I have a wonderful program called Freedom that turns off the Internet for a period of time. So I'll say I want to be free for three hours, and then the Internet's dead for three hours. Um, uh, and then I write, and as I write, I'm speaking like it's almost as if I'm typing and after a couple minutes of typing, then I'm talking. So I'm talking out loud as I'm writing. So I feel like I'm talking to somebody as I'm writing. Um, and when I write columns uh, for the Huffington Post or for magazines, um, the computer reads them back to me. Uh, and in big chunks of this book, the computer would read it back to me. So I don't feel like I'm, I, I feel that the writing is very far from narrative and from just speaking. And I try to pull them as tightly together as I can because I do, you know, I, 
there are a lot of great academics in this business who've done a lot of academic work, which is serious but impenetrable to most ordinary people. And there's a lot of polemicists and activists who have been pushing um, in this field, but without, I think, a sufficient sensitivity to the complexities. And so I'm just really trying to marry the two and give a chance to people who are you know, intelligent and, and care about this country, a certain love of this country, to have an opportunity to understand a little of both of those sides. You know, as a as a one-time young Republican myself. Wow. <laughs> Confessions are raging here. <laughs> uh, it was interesting for me to hear you uh, confess uh, partway through this book that you were once a, a rabid Reaganite. I, <laughs> yeah, I was the youngest member of a delegation in the 1980 Republican Convention, um, delegation from Pennsylvania. Um, and yeah, certainly I was a rabid Reaganite. I was actually running a state Senate campaign. I was a campaign manager at the time uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania. I'd like you to just talk about how that kind of, how you feel those kind of experiences as you saw what unfolded through the Reagan and the Bush years, uh, how those informed, you know, your intellectual development and, and I think the development of the kind of voice that you have as a, as a writer. Well, I think there are two things of Re- about Reaganism that were important to me. This is not a characterization of Reagan. It's just how Reagan was understood inside of my own family. So one was a conception of integrity. What struck, what, what I think, the, you know, my father was a strong Republican and, uh, and he was an um, entrepreneur. He ran a steel fabricating company, company that built bridges. Um, and, uh, and, and what was striking about Reagan was his willingness to say and stand for very strong positions, regardless of what it appeared to be the costs. And I think that it was one of the very important um, uh, examples in the history of politics of demonstrating why being strong and clear wins you support, even from people who disagree with you, because they respect the integrity of taking uh, that kind of position. And as a Democrat, I've often felt that we don't have enough Reaganites in that sense, people who are just willing to take a strong position and be clear about it and, regardless of the consequence, just push for it. Um, So that was one feature of that. And I don't think that feature, I feel that's, still think that's a critical part of any public figure. The other feature was liberty. I I was a libertarian. um, And I thought the government's role uh, uh, primarily was to protect liberty uh, and I still think liberty. I still think of myself as a libertarian in the sense of, you know, that Justice Brennan was a libertarian, constantly trying to make sure the government doesn't overreach in the context of the Bill of Rights and, and Bill of Rights understood broadly. The thing that changed for me was a, a was a deeper recognition of the importance of equality within our society. Um, so how do we make sure that public schools are great um, and we don't have two classes created by those who go to public school and those who go to private school and the gap between citizenship, uh, citizens in, a, in our society grows? Or how do we make sure people are um, in a society where they feel capable of competing in a marketplace? Uh, so, you know, the equality dimension made it harder to be oblivious to the kind of social conditions that the Democratic Party was increasingly interested in. Um, and as the Republican Party has moved more extreme in some ways, it's made it easier to be committed to the Democratic Party. Now, one of the things I think that you do very well in this book is give us a, a perspective of the creation of the Constitution um, in a way that helps us understand what's wrong today. And, and I think that's really uh, I, one of the, at the core of all of your arguments. 
Yeah. Um, so the, the Constitution was our second Constitution. Um, the first Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, was a complete disaster. And the country in 1786 was about to collapse. Um, and so in 1787, uh, a convention was called, and its original purpose was to simply propose changes to the Articles of Confederation. But the convention quickly decided to meet in secret and to draft a whole new constitution. And what's striking about that is, you know, we kind of think back to 1787, the 224 years ago, and we think about the 74 founders, um, and they all seem alike to us. Um, but we forget that even though they were all white males, basically the same class, uh, pretty well off in the society, um, uh, they were fundamentally different. There were people in that room who believed in slavery and people in that room who believed slavery was the moral abomination of the age. Um, and yet they were able to bracket those disagreements enough to focus on building a republic that would be able to work through disagreements, and including that one, which it eventually took too long and was too bloody, it worked through in the context of the Civil War. Um, but I think that that ability to recognize the need to um, put aside certain disagreements for the purpose of finding a platform foundation, a system within which you can build a government, is uh, a recognition that we don't have enough of today. I think right now we have you know these wonderfully powerful grassroots movements happening on the right with the Tea Party, on the left with Occupy Movement. But it's extremely hard to get either of them to recognize how it might be essential for them to put aside their differences for a minute and to sit down and think, is there something they could agree about, which is defining the problem with our government enough to try to get that thing changed to create the conditions within which they can fight about the more substantive issues and differences they have. Now, you do a great job of defining the problem, what you call the nature of the disease. And you give us these great examples of <clears throat> the BPA studies, uh, cell phone studies. And, and what you do is suggest that, that at the end of each of these, that we ask a different question than the ones we're we we tend to ask. So I'd like you to describe, give us a, you know, kind of an overview of, say, BPA and how, how you looked at that. That's so, so interesting, I thought. Yeah. So um, I want people to reflect upon the conditions for trust. What has to be true before you actually trust what's said? So I talk about a couple cases where there's an argument about whether a product is safe. So for example, BPA, which of course is, is, ever present in our environment right now. Um, I'm certain it's inside this bottle of water uh, that I'm drinking right this minute. Um, and the question many people have asked is whether BPA is safe. Um, now, I don't have any qualification to say whether BPA is safe or not, and I don't try to say whether BPA is safe. But what I do is I map out um, a picture of the studies about BPA safety. And if you divide the studies into studies that have been independently funded and studies that have been um, uh, industry-funded and distinguish between those that uh, find some reason to be concerned about BPA and those that don't. Overwhelmingly, the industry-funded studies see no problem, and the independently-funded studies do see a problem. Now, that doesn't show that there's a problem. 
Indeed, a lot of the independently funded studies might be funded by groups that have their own agenda. I'm not making any claim about that. But I think that difference alone gives most people reason for pause. You know, whatever they thought before, they're now a little bit wondering, is this difference in funding responsible for the difference in outcome? Or is the difference in outcome independent of the difference in funding? And I make that same point in a couple of contexts, and I drive home what is an obvious psychological reaction, which we, in fact, tested through a series of, with my colleague Mazarin Banaji at Harvard, a series of um, vignettes with, uh, with, li- with real people. We t- tested it to demonstrate that just having money in the wrong place, it's not having money, but having money in the wrong place, leads people to make assumptions about the corruption of the judgment that um, you can't just erase by saying nobody was corrupted. You can only erase by structuring the relationship to money in a way that doesn't drive people to that conclusion. One of the things that's so interesting about the way you write the book is, again, this comes into your prose, where you will directly address the reader and say, you know, this might be a solution, but if you want that solution, you write that book. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that... Uh, you sometimes will concede arguments. You'll say, sure, that's a good argument. And I like that feeling that we as readers get um, that we work through your arguments with you. And I think that makes us a more powerful book than, and an in, a very different kind of style. Yeah, and again, um, I'm glad you have that reaction. Uh, I can tell you it's not planned in the sense that I don't feel like I know the answers when I start writing. Mm-hmm. I feel like the writing itself is the construction of the answers and the argument. And so at many times, I will come to a place and I'll see a fork in the road and I'll think, okay, I understand you could go down there and you could make that kind of argument. Um, and so I'll either concede that or I'll say, you know, that's for you to do, um, but here's the way I'm going. Uh, um, but again, it, it is very much like I imagine somebody sitting in the room um, who's engaged in a conversation about it. It's one of the advantages of actually being a law professor. Um, you know, law professors are different from other professors in, in the way that they typically teach. We don't lecture much. Um, typically, what we do is just give cases to students, have them read the students, and then we have a dialogue with the students, like walk them through the material in a way that gets them to see things in a certain way. And that's what I feel like I'm trying to do in the context of writing this book. It's presuming you know, an equality with the reader. Like, you know, this is about citizenship issues. Nobody needs to be an expert. I have to introduce some expert material at certain places, but anybody should be able to be accessible to that. Uh, and then I want to walk you through how to think about it in a way that gets you to the place that I, I do think I want to get you to, which is about what the problem is, what the solution is, and what the challenge is to bring it about. Now, uh, the the problem as as we explore it becomes clearer and clearer, and this is what you call the different kinds of dependence. And when we think of somebody uh, as the Congress, as we want to think, uh, typically we want to think of the Congress as being independent. They're independent, but you argue, and I think convincingly, that we want the Congress to be dependent. Right. I think. I think the the way to think about it is that, in fact, when we say independent, what we mean is it has the proper dependence. So when we say we want the judiciary to be independent, that doesn't mean we want the judiciary to do whatever the heck it wants to do. It means we want the judiciary to be dependent upon the law. That's what independence is, to have the right dependence. So then you look at Congress and you say, well, what's the right dependence for Congress? Um, And the framers were very careful to articulate a constitution 
that protected Congress from improper influences um, because they wanted Congress to have the proper influence, the proper dependence. And that was, as Federalist 52 put it, to be dependent upon, quote, the people alone, end quote. The people alone. So it's who is it to be you're to be dependent upon? The people. And that's all, just the people. Um, and, you know, devices in the Constitution, like the clause that forbids gifts from kings um, uh, or princes or any foreign state, those are devices in the Constitution to assure that a different kind of dependence doesn't uh, seep into the system. Um, and I think that what we've got here is uh, framers very keen to protect Congress from all sorts of improper dependencies that never even imagined the improper dependency that would be produced by campaign finance. Because at the time the framers wrote, nobody thought that they would run campaigns for Congress. You know, it was basically, who is the senior guy in our district who deserves to be congressman? We get together and we'll just pick that person. The whole idea of even campaigning for an office was anathema for much of the, for many of the framers. I mean, very quickly, the kind of democratic influence changed that. And you had more uh, ambitious candidates who had run and explicitly say that this is what they wanted to do. But the framers had a much more traditional Republican conception. Um, and so they didn't protect against this influence and didn't protect against it. For most of the history, it wasn't such a destructive influence. But now, in I think really in the last uh, um, uh, 20-some years, it has become an extremely destructive influence that we have to address for fear of preserving the republic. And you talk about a, a dynamic um, and you have this diagram that haunts my dreams now <laughs> with our, our Congress critters on one side, special interests on the other, and lobbyists in the middle. And um, one of the things it, that you talk about is that the results of this dynamic is that Congress just – they don't even have time to do their job. It's amazing. You say, what, 30 percent of the time they're spending fundraising. Well, I read every single eff effort to estimate how much time they spend fundraising. And it ranges between 30 percent and 70 percent depending on the counting. And then after I was finished, people were showing me stuff that said 80 percent. So let's, let's be a little bit more uh, conservative about it. But even if it's just 30 percent um, – there are two things that that does. One is, you know, if you're spending 30% of your time raising money, you're spending 30% less of your time doing your job. And nobody thinks that we hire Congress people for the purpose of raising money. You know, if, you're, if your teacher at your school said that 30% of my time I'm out there fundraising for the school, you'd think, well, wait a minute, we hired you to teach, not to fundraise. Um, but our Congress people are fundraisers. The other thing it does, though, the thing I think is more troubling is it turns... It makes Congress people incredibly sensitive to how what they do might affect their ability to raise money. Um, just like Congress people are sensitive to how what they do might affect their ability to get reelected through votes, it's also reelected in the campaign funding game. And that becomes very destructive uh, because obviously fundraising comes from a tiny slice of America. The rest of America is not funding the majority of these campaigns. And so they're sensitive to the tiny slice and not to the majority. In a sense, you say this, and I think this is uh, as always what I think. One of the things I think that speaks to the the skill with which this book was written is that as I was reading this, I came to a conclusion. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking that you like ex make explicit a couple pages later. We all have two votes, and, and so talk about the two votes that each of us has. Yeah, so we have a vote in the money election, and we have a vote in the voting election. 
Um, and in the money election, we vote by sending checks into our candidates who we support. And in the voting election, we vote on an election day by going down to a polling place and casting a ballot. Um, and what's striking, if you frame it like that, is that, of course, the Constitution has been interpreted to be extremely sensitive about the voting election and to make sure that the weight of my vote is equal to the weight of yours. So when you redistrict districts, you've got to make sure that the districts are drawn so that the weight of votes between districts is basically the same. Um, and any significant difference is enough to invalidate a uh, districting plan. But when you turn to the money election, there's no concern at all about the radical difference between your ability to affect the votes and mine. Um, you know, so uh, if you think about those who max out in a political campaign um, in 2010, 0.05% of Americans maxed out in their contribution to a political campaign. Now, if those are the people candidates listen to, the people who are maxing out, then that 0.05% of Americans have enormously uh, greater influence over what happens in our government than the 99.95% of Americans who don't, right? And and so I'm I, all I'm trying to say is that we didn't create a republic that said money got to pick who wins. We said republic was one where the people through the voting systems would say who wins. And and I think that we have to take that seriously and find a way to make sure that the money isn't distorting that voting process so that we can't have faith that the voting process is actually reflecting the will of the people. You know, you talk about the problems of of the 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 congressmen face, and, and uh, one of them is this kind of uh, what you call the gift economy. So I'd like you to talk about the gift economy and how that creates, um, you know, both what you call distortion and distraction as as a problems in in, in the in our governance. Yeah. So again, if you don't think of the corruption here as bribery um, or a transaction, I'll do this for that. Um, then in what way is, is uh, influence being leveraged? And it's being lever it leveraged in a much more complicated, um, actually a more familiar way for our ordinary life. And that's what I call the kind of gift economy, um, building on Lewis Hyde's conception of how we think about relationship and obligation. And the sense there is that lobbyists and representatives are in a long-term relationship, and they don't need to worry every moment to add up the sums of who owes what. They kind of keep in their heads chits. Who did what favor and how did that favor get returned? So one day I come into you and I say, um, we'd like to run a fundraiser for you, you know, with the pharmaceutical industry because you've been a great supporter of patents and the pharmaceutical industry is really grateful for that. So we're going to hold a fundraiser and charge $5,000 a person. And, um, and, you know, you feel very good for that. And then two weeks later, I come in, the same lobbyist comes in and says, um, you know, we have a really important problem with this tele telecom bill that's coming down. And we need some serious attention to the way in which it's trying to regulate access to cable. Uh, and you as a congressperson sort of think in the back of your head, that, that's the guy who a week ago or two weeks ago Ted told me he was going to hold this fundraiser. Um, and that fundraiser is really important to me. So as I'm listening to his argument about telecom, I'm in my back of my mind working through the significance of his relationship to me as far as the gift of this fundraising. So the, the reciprocity here builds tightness of the relationship. And you can begin to see how lobbyists then 
can become the makers of policy, in a, not in a crude way, not in, not in an illegal way, but in the ordinary way in which humans become um, obligated and feel like they need to answer the obligation. And they do. Uh, and that's why the system is so profitable and works so well for lobbyists. And those lobbyists often uh, once were staffers, congressmen, and, and you, you describe uh, you know, these low-paid congressmen. They don't make that much money compared to what they could make if they went into the legal world. As That, that Congress is in some way the Bush League for K Street. Right. This is a quote from Jim Cooper, who's a Democrat from Tennessee and has been in Congress as long as anybody, all but about 20 other members of Congress. And Cooper says that Congress has become a, a farm league for K Street. Mm. So they kind of imagine their life, not just congressmen, but staffers too. Um, they, they think of their life in the business model, which is I'm going to invest some time as a public servant, and then I'm going to go cash out into the private sector. And what that, I think, is the most important thing about that is that it makes it really hard to imagine these guys playing a role in reforming the system because reforming the system is to make their next job much less valuable and it's going to be hard for them to accept a reform that makes it hard to, in effect, retire on this super salary of a lobbyist. So that's the that leads to real skepticism about whether we're going to succeed in the ordinary way to get this system changed. We hear a lot about earmarks. And uh, when I read in your book, I was kind of shocked that earmarks are, are not something... I thought it was something that had been with us since no colonial times. No, right. not, not it's a recent invention, isn't it? That's right. Earmarks in the way in which they were um, a very big issue of the last couple of years have been uh, relatively recent and created by a Democrat, uh, you know, in a Democratic uh, former Democratic policy person, somebody who used to work for McGovern, um, um, Gerald Cassidy, who um, is the principal and one of the leading lobbyist firms in Washington, began to recognize the way in which people had an interest in securing funding, even for nonprofit purposes. So the original earmarks are really all in the context of education or in research. And as you've got people on one side very keen to get government money and people on the other side very keen to get campaign funding, um, you have somebody in the middle who's the market maker. Um, and again, not illegally, not unethically, but these relationships get developed and everybody understands the obligation that gets created and the obligation gets acted on. And if it's not, then the next time you come around looking for a favor, you're not going to get it. Um, so uh, earmarks begin to be kind of infrastructure um, for this whole lobbying industry to evolve into something much more powerful than it was um, in the in the 1960s. And this gets, I think, to the issue of what you call uh, distortion. And I, I love this term, shape-shifting, right? that we, we have uh, werewolves up in, uh, in Congress. Yeah. yeah. And, and the idea here is, you know, a congressperson is not going to go in and change his or her views about, you know, big issues uh, in the name of money. Um, so you come in and you, um, you know, you've fought... Uh, I would say wrongly, but you've identified yourself as someone who is keen to fight the war on drugs. Um, you know, somebody coming in and say, I'll contribute to your campaign um, if you give up the war on drugs is not going to have any effect. And nobody's going to change on those kind of big issues like that. But there are 10,000 issues that a congressperson has to think about. And on issue 11 through 10,000, there's lots of opportunities for subtly positioning oneself in a way that's likely to be able to raise more money. Um, and so there is this kind of distortion that comes merely from the fact that Congress people are aware of how they can 
increase the opportunity to raise money. Um, I describe a case of Leslie Byrne, who was a Democrat from Virginia, coming to Congress. And when she got there, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. And then to clarify, <laughs> she went on, he was not an environmentalist. So the point is, you know, you're going to have to make lots of judgment calls. Simple heuristic. When you make a judgment call, ask the question, where's the money in the case? And go that way. And then if you go that way, you're more likely to be able to get something in return. One of the things you talk about, I think, very interestingly, is the tax code, how the complexity of the tax code hides a multiplicity of sins. And I love the, your what your, your um, uh, talk about uh, sunset laws. That, that the sun never sets, does it? No, that's right. And, <laughs> um, you know, sunset laws, meaning laws that expire after a certain period and have to be renewed, were, were created by good government types who thought this was a good way to force Congress to rethink its decisions every so often. But they've become also uh, a temptation to a certain kind of abuse because as the sunset begins to happen, those people who benefit from the law um, then receive a telephone call from a lobbyist or from a congressperson who says, well, you know, if we only find a way to get enough support to extend this special privilege that you've gotten in the tax code, we might be able to do it. You'll have to help us by, you know, hiring us as a lobbyist or you'll have to help us by um, contributing to our campaign. But the point is there becomes this industry, this this machine, which is really a money printing machine because the tax code is huge and has all sorts of exceptions built into it, many of them set to expire after a limited period of time. And as they expire, there's just a business. You identify the beneficiaries, you go to the beneficiaries, you tell them, we want you to help us to support getting this extended. They get it extended. So there's a great case of the first of these temporary tax provisions was um, Ronald Reagan's in the 1981 Tax uh, 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 Act, which, um, which created the uh, Research and Development Tax Credit. And it was a temporary provision because the Democrats were skeptical of whether it would work or not. And Reagan said, uh, OK, let's just test it. We'll ask after a period of time whether economists think it would, was a good idea. So after a period of time, um, the economists were asked, and the economists said it was a great idea. Uh, it was exactly the kind of incentive that uh, investment needed. But to this day, the research and, tax uh, research and development tax credit is temporary. And it's temporary because every time it's about to expire, very powerful, very wealthy companies um, are eager to get it extended. Their eagerness then translates into lots of money spent on lobbyists and lots of money contributed to the right campaigns. It gets extended. Uh, it's been extended every single time except once. There was a short lapse, and when they extended it, they retroactively covered up the lapse so that nobody would be hurt. So they play this game, uh, part of the purpose of which is designed just to find ways to flush money into the political campaigns. And it's a little terrifying to think we have a tax code written in part to raise money for the government. I get that but in part to raise money for campaigns, which I don't get at all. This kind of systemic corruption, and by that you make it very clear, it's not corruption of people. It's just that the system itself has been malformed to channel money and cause the Congress critters to be busy doing things they shouldn't be doing. It defeats both the left and the right. And I think this is one of the most interesting parts of your book in that you show this is a very nonpartisan problem. That's right. I think it's obvious to people, especially after the Barack Obama administration, why it defeats the left. Uh, Obama had many objectives, which people think of as left-leaning uh, objectives, that were stymied because of the significant influence of money in the system, from the particular contours of the health 
um, uh, reform to global warming to many issues where Obama is just not able to achieve what he wanted to achieve because of the uh, interaction with money. Um, but on the right, I also think it's an important uh, constraint. Um, and part of that comes from history. So uh, one of my heroes in the book is Robert Kaiser, who wrote a fantastic book, So Damn Much Money. And he describes that when the Gingrich uh, revolution happened and Gingrich um, and his uh, crew was talking about delivering on their promise to shrink the size of government, there's a very important meaning when they get together and they recognize that if they actually delivered on this shrinking the size of government, they would be cutting off the opportunity to raise a lot of money from the people who are the targets of government regulation. And they have this you know, quintessential political judgment to make. Should we do what we promised to do? Or should we do something that makes sure we can get enough money to win the next election? And of course, what they chose was not to shrink the size of government, to instead continue the size of government as it was and to develop relationships in a way that would easily translate into fundraising. So if you're a right-winger and you want simpler taxes, you're not going to get it under the current system, so long as complex taxes helps make it easier to raise money to run for Congress. If you want a smaller government, you're not going to get it under the existing system, so long as larger government makes it easier to get the money you need to run for Congress. The objectives of the right are inconsistent with the structure of current ways of funding campaigns. And I think if we just could change the way of funding campaigns, there would at least be a fair fight. You know, We could say, it doesn't make sense to have a flat tax the way uh, Rick Perry is now talking about it, or uh, Herman Cain's 999 plan. Um, but, you know, the naivete in Cain and Perry's proposals, not surprisingly two guys that haven't spent much time in Washington, is that they, they would radically change the opportunity for both the right and the left to raise money out of the tax system. And you can imagine very few congressmen are going to be eager to vote uh, uh, for a change that would destroy their ability to use the tax system to help fund their campaigns. And this gets us to campaign funding, and you talk about reforms. You actually offer us some solutions. And I want you to talk about what you call the Grant and Franklin Project, because I think this is, uh, I think, the crux of, of your book, and, and it's something that, to give us hope. Yeah, so um, if the problem is we have campaigns uh, that produce Congress people dependent upon the funders, and the funders are not the people, the solution is to create a system where Congress is dependent upon the funders, but the funders are the people. So I imagine a system where um, the first $50 of the tax revenue that you send into Congress, whether it's your income tax, your cigarette tax, or your gasoline tax, whatever, gets rebated to you in the form of a democracy voucher. So we'll send back the first 50 you send in. And your $50 is now a democracy voucher that you get to allocate um, however you want to whatever congressional candidate you want, but only if the candidate agrees to accept democracy vouchers only, plus contributions of up to $100 above those democracy vouchers. So it's a way to use the democracy vouchers to get candidates to limit their contributions to just democracy vouchers or $100 contributions maxed out from any citizen. Now, what that system would do is achieve a couple of things which the current proposals for public funding don't. One of the strongest conservative criticisms of public funding is that it, ten, it, it typically makes it so that my money is being used to support speech I don't believe in. 
But under this system, your money is being used to support speech you believe in. My money is being used to support speech I believe in. Nobody's subsidizing anybody's speech. We're getting back the money we put in, and that's what we're spending on the system. Number two, conservatives worry that we have some bureaucrat who's deciding how much money each candidate gets, and that is a little bit troubling to imagine bureaucrats and incumbents deciding how much the opponents get to spend. This system, how much you get to spend, is determined by how much the people want to give you to spend. So again, it's like an election, but it's a money election before the election, and that process is the process by which you prevail in the general election. Um, but the other feature about it is, you know, imagine that the significant majority, let's say 70% of members of Congress, opted into this system. If we had a majority of Congress funding their election through small-dollar campaign funding alone, then when Congress did something stupid, it's either because there are too many Democrats or because there are too many Republicans. But the one thing you wouldn't think is it because of the money, because money has been removed from the equation in a way that can distort the judgment away from what the judgment would be um, in the right condition so that we, when we see something we don't like, we have a democratic reason to get involved. Like those idiots, they did the wrong thing, and I'm going to go try to convince them why they did the wrong thing, as opposed to the current system where those idiots, they did the wrong thing, well, because all the money in the world was on the side of doing the wrong thing, and I don't have all the money in the world, so there's no reason for me to go down and convince them of anything because um, uh, that's not the currency of the system. So the alternative is just to make it so that the people are the funders, and it, by being the funders, Congress becomes more responsive to the people. And also, uh, another effect of this is that those who at first don't opt in are going to be incentivized to opt in because they'll be obvious. Their the perception of them will be that obviously that they're money driven. They're money driven, and this is a lot of money. You know, fifty dollars to every voter is six billion dollars in an election cycle. Mm -hmm. The total amount raised and spent in the last congressional election was one point eight billion dollars. So this is two and a half times the total amount raised and spent in the last uh, election. Uh, so people would have a reason to want to opt into this. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the critical thing. You've got to make it so people want to voluntarily get into it. We can't force it down uh, on anybody because Supreme Court has basically banned the kind of restrictions that would be involved if you had to say you must use this system. But the Supreme Court has said you can give people the opportunity to opt into limits, and then those limits are perfectly constitutional. Now, you have a couple of other things that you talk about, um, primary challenges and uh, presidential reforms. Tell us about those real quickly. Yeah, so in describing the reforms, I basically map out four of them. One of them is, let's just pass a statute. And the thing about passing a statute is that it's hard to imagine Congress changing itself. Um, so I'm pretty down on the idea that a statute would ever get passed. I'm willing to even say it's impossible. So that leads to what I describe as three insane reforms, um, crazy ideas. Um, so uh, the third of them is a constitutional convention. The second of them is, a, is kind of a regent presidency. So imagine a candidate for president who said, I'm going to run for president. I'm going to do one thing, break this corrupt Congress. Uh, and when I succeed, I will resign. Um, and then my vice president will become president. But I want to be credible about the fact that I am a president for this one purpose, um, I mean, of course, that president is the president for whatever comes up, but this is the one thing that person's going to do is to hold the government hostage until Congress delivers on this promise. Um, and then to establish the credibility of it, if he's not in there, you know, saying he's doing this for some other reason, then he says, I'm going to resign from it. Um, I, you know, I kind of craft this because I'm trying to think about a way to get around 
what is the hardest problem with thinking about a presidential reformer right now, and that is Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama is the latest Lucy who has pulled the football out from we, Charlie Brown's uh, uh, trajectory, and we're on our back and thinking, how could we fall for this again? Um, And so, you know, we need a different kind of presidential candidate or a different kind of structure to the presidential campaign so that when the president says it and says, I credibly mean this is what I'm going to do, it's hard to believe he actually or she has any other uh, idea in mind. Uh, And then the primary idea um, uh, uh, is actually an idea that was suggested um, to me um, when I was thinking of running for Congress myself. Um, it turns out that uh, um, uh, the Constitution doesn't require that you be a resident of the district that you're running in. It only requires that you be a resident of the state that you're running in. So in principle, someone could run for Congress in each of the congressional districts in California at the same time. Nothing to stop you from doing that. Um, and so... The idea here is you begin to imagine candidates who are themselves uh, uh, reform candidates, uh, and they say that uh, their job, what they're trying to do, is to bring about the reform necessary to change this system, to get rid of the corrupting influence of money, and they will take on, in a primary challenge, any incumbent who refuses to commit to making this the fundamental issue. And the one thing incumbents are worried about most, it turns out, is primary challenges because it really shakes things up inside the district. So again, it's a kind of crazy idea to leverage um, uh, uh, support for this. And uh, it's one of three, but um, it's not actually the one that I think is ultimately going to be uh, most likely to, to win. Which one do you think is most likely to win? Well, all of them are low probability, but I think the convention actually has the most potential. Um, now, by a convention, you know, the, con- the Constitution gives us two ways to amend the Constitution. Congress proposes amendments as the standard way. But the framers were eager to make sure that if Congress was itself the problem, we had a, round, a way around Congress. And that's a convention. The states call for a convention. 34 states pass resolutions calling for a convention. Congress has to create the convention. The convention then deliberates and picks its um, reforms um, and proposes them, and they get sent out to the states as proposed amendments. And 38 states then have to ratify those amendments. Now, the crazy idea, the really crazy idea in this proposal is that the convention, in my view, needs to be constituted by um, like like a jury. It's basically a civil jury where you randomly select people to be in the convention, and then they get to decide in this random and representative way what the convention does. Um, This sounds crazy anywhere, but in California, we have some good examples. Um, The California Forward Movement had a wonderful deliberative poll, randomly selected Californians who sat down and tried to think about really hard issues that California was facing and came up with a series of proposals, which many people think is much better than anything that's come out of the legislature. Um, And I think that if we began to run mock conventions like this around the country, 20 or 30 of them, people would see that ordinary citizens, this is the one sport where the amateur is better than the professional, because the professional is so good at knowing what the special interest is that he or she have to keep happy. But the amateur comes in and just, you know, if you give them the right information, you can summon into life a being that thinks, well, what actually makes sense for the nation? Um, and, And I think that if we had a series of these conventions, people would begin to be convinced that this randomly selected kind of convention would be a pretty good way to identify the kinds of reform that should be proposed. Um, I wouldn't say that they should make the change, that they should at least be able to propose the change, and then we send them out 
to our legislatures in the states to decide whether they should be ratified as part of the Constitution. Well, you know, as a reading experience, sitting down and reading this book, I think is it's really kind of a revelation because it involved me as a citizen in a way that I had that books don't normally do, and it spat me out with a with the feeling that you know there's something we can do, and I think that's a really interesting effect to create with this sort of book. Well, for all of the hours I spent away from my children, I can say that hearing that from you um, is extremely edifying, and I'm grateful for that because that's what I hope it does, um, and I hope it does that for enough people to get enough people into this movement to make possible this change. And we can find we can uh, join that movement. It's rootstrikers.org. That's right. Tell us a little bit just about that. So the so we want to rootstrikers is actually part of a much bigger organization now that is going to make this reform central. But rootstrikers' job is to try to help people um, understand the root cause of all of these problems. It comes from a sacred text of Henry David Thoreau, who wrote, for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. Uh, and we want to use that idea of the root striker to bring more people into this conversation about the connection between money and politics. This organization was originally fixed Congress first, but when the Republicans took over Congress and there was clearly no progress to be made there right away, we said, let's talk about this issue generally. And that issue generally is actually um, you know, quite rich in the states as well as in Congress. And so Root Strikers points out, tries to educate. We're going to do some teach-ins in the context of the Occupy is to get people to focus on what is the problem, this corruption, and hopefully drive some kind of coalition around solving that problem um, across political uh, spectrum. Lawrence Lessig's new book is Republic Lost. We hope that it is the beginning of a republic lost no more. Thank you for joining me, Lawrence. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.